BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. This is, uh, I think, one of the more uh, concerning things that I've seen. This is in a column in The Guardian. Quote, the federal government, by contrast, has not yet announced moves by the Defense Department, the National Guard, the Army Corps of Engineers, or the Veterans Administration, which has a nationwide network of hospitals to help set up field hospitals, rededicate medical facilities, contract with private companies to accelerate manufacture of key supplies, maintain order, or otherwise manage the expected wave of critical COVID-19 cases. Our military is not doing anything. I mean, you recall a week ago, Marilyn, a regular listener to our program, a woman named Marilyn, who I believe is in Wisconsin, called in and said that her son is over in Afghanistan and this high fever, dry cough, cold is ripping through the, the American military base there. And I connected her to Mark Pocan and to Ro Khanna and Pocan's people, and he talked with her or his people talked with her. And in fact, he went out and, and he got interviewed in the news. And I think it was on Friday of last week, maybe Thursday, where the military was at first for several days unable to tell a member of Congress who has oversight over the military, unable to tell a member of Congress whether or not they had any test kits available in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is, has a border with Iran. Iran is one of, the th- one of the three or four countries or five countries now, I guess, that are having massive outbreaks. I mean, Iran, they're, they're, you can see from outer space, they're, build, they're, they're digging these giant trenches to be mass graves in Iran because so many people are dying and they can't handle them. This is happening in Italy right now. Last night on the news, they were talking about how in Italy, the, the, the places that uh, incinerate bodies, the, the crematoriums, where they, where they cremate bodies, are so overwhelmed that they can't deal with it. They, I mean, th- this is like, you know, I- insane stuff. And the military... You, you talk about people being packed together like sardines. You talk about people, you know, being in close contact with each other. You talk about people having no place to go. You got, how are you going to shelter in place when you're living in military housing, particularly if you're, you know, if you're in a barracks or something like that? Uh, it's, this is going to, it's not a possibility. It's a virtual certainty. This is going to rip through our military, both here and abroad. And when it does, our military needs to be ready for this. And the federal government, by contrast, has not yet announced any moves by the Defense Department, National Guard, Army Corps of Engineers, or Veterans Administration, which has a nationwide network of hospitals, to set up field hospitals, rededicate... Nothing? And then you've got the governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo, begging the federal government. I mean, Donald Trump went on Twitter to trash Andrew Cuomo and said, you don't, essentially, you don't know how to be a governor. And Cuomo replied on Twitter saying, give me the Army Corps of Engineers, because he wants them to start building field hospitals next door to regular hospital facilities just to, to deal with the overflow that he knows is coming. And we are, we are, in all probability, 11 days behind Italy right now, according to the experts. Two weeks ago, I, this is the statistic from either Friday or Monday, two weeks ago we were exact, we had the exact same number of deaths, you know, plus or minus a dozen or so, that Italy had two weeks before, uh, excuse me, 
either Friday or Monday, we had the same number of, P- of known cases that Italy had two weeks ago. Their curve and our curve are following the same trajectory. I think Conti is the name of the prime minister. He's a right winger. He made a coalition with an with a even further right party. He did not lock down the country to start out with. He did not take this seriously, his attitude. You know, just like Boris Johnson in the UK, the UK health minister. Now, he's walked back from this in the last two days. But the UK's health minister said, we should just let this burn through the country because then we'll have herd immunity. Well, you know, medically, scientifically, statistically, all that kind of stuff, that's all true. But from the perspective of being a human, when you're talking about a disease where, you know, just short of 20% of all the people who get it need to be hospitalized, sometimes for up to a month. And you've got other people who just got a cancer diagnosis or just had a heart attack who need access to hospitals. That's insane. Well, that, that, and, and that's the attitude. I believe that that's the attitude that Donald Trump was taking because Donald Trump has been hanging out with Boris Johnson. Remember, he, the UK was the only country he wasn't going to ban flights to or from. Why would that be? Well, in part, it's because he's got three hotels in the UK, two of them in Ireland and one in Scotland. But probably more likely, it's that he's been on the phone with Boris and their buddies and, hey, yeah, well, let's just let this thing rip through the country. Yeah, you know, it's like pulling a scab off, right? Well, you know, or a Band-Aid off. Once you get it off, you know, it's a little painful, but then everything will be good. You'll have herd immunity. Everything will be fine. Not realizing that, you know, the, the insane amount of damage this is going to do. We still don't have test kits in the United States. I'm seeing people on message boards saying, you know, I had a fever and a dry cough for a while, and I don't know if I had the, the virus or not, and I don't know if I spread it to other people or not, and how do we find out? I mean, we're, everybody's talking about a PCR test. That is a, this is a test that basically is looking at RNA, and it, it will tell you whether the virus is present. But we need, an, we need an antibody test also, a test that will tell you if you have ever had it and whether you are immune or not. And I guarantee you they've got that in China because they just shipped like a ton of blood plasma, and I don't know if it's a literal ton or a metaphorical ton, but they just shipped a bunch of plasma, the liquid part of blood, where they centrifuge out the the particles, and it's just, it's like, you know, it's kind of yellowish water. Looks kind of like urine. They just shipped a bunch of this plasma off to Italy because that's where the antibodies are, the antibodies to the coronavirus. This is blood that they pulled out of people who survived the virus. And maybe it's blood out of people who died from the virus. I don't know. And I don't know how the medicine, the medical part of this whole thing works. But, you know, clearly China has figured out how to identify the antibodies because they're sending them to Italy. And here this is Tom Baggioni. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't see where this was published. But the headline says, U.S. only about 11 days behind repeating the coronavirus devastation being felt by Italy. According to a report, oh, this is Business Insider. According to a report from Business Insider, federal health authorities in the U.S. have maybe a week to get their arms around how to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. Italy has seen 370 deaths in one day. That was yesterday. And experts say the moves officials and citizens make this week are crucial and will shape the COVID-19 trajectory at a national level. The U.S. has recorded 4,700 coronavirus cases, 92 deaths. It's doubling every two to three days, or three to four days, excuse me. And Trump's response has been three months late, and I think people are waking up to that. You know, I hope that they are successful. I literally pray that they are successful. And both in getting this virus under control, protecting the American people, and in keeping our economy in shape. But, you know, if if they can put together a, a package that's actually going to help Americans, God bless them. I will applaud them. But, you know, what I'm hearing so far and what I've been seeing so far, I'm, I'm a little concerned. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Every day and every way, we are getting better, right? As a people... We're learning from this and we're seeing the absurdity of the Trump administration. That's a good thing.
Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. John in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, John, you're right over the river from me. What's up? Oh, I'm not over the river from you today. I'm heading up with a load of bread from Los Angeles for y'all up there to have in the stores. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I bet that. I wanted to let you. <laughs> well, yeah, we were told we run for United Grocer Warehouse, Fred Meyer, and Bimbo Bakery with our company. And mm-hmm. we're basically stopping by the house Thursday, loading up the truck, and we don't know when we're going to make it back home again. We're just going to be running groceries like there's no tomorrow. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to let you know. Buying, right? Yeah, the people panic buying, but when it comes to that panic buying, and I don't want to add fuel to the fire, but you got to start stocking up on flour and yeast so you can make your own bread, because I was just informed that Bimbo is talking about shutting down for two full weeks, all Bimbo Whoa. bakeries. Is that so that their employees won't be exposed to uh, other sick employees? Is that what you're, why they're talking yeah, about that? Yeah, that's what the execs are talking about right now because they don't want their employees passing it back and forth and being in a bakery with all the, you know, having it on the, sitting on the packaging. Right. And having it right. spread that way because, I mean, I pick up Remarkable. yesterday and it's out in the stores tomorrow in Portland because my wife and I drive team. So we just drive straight through, and it goes right onto their trucks and right into the stores. Twenty less than twenty four hours later. So, but yeah, so American if, truckers, if we're, one, we're on the front lines out here. <laughs> yeah, if one big bakery is thinking of shutting down, they ha- they can't be the only uh, supplier of food to the United States that is thinking like this. No, there there are probably two dozen different bakeries just in the L.A. area. For bimbo, it's not one big mm-hmm. bakery. They're talking about company wide. People don't realize how delicate our supply chains really are, and we don't. Have so, is the bread that we eat here in Portland and Vancouver made in Los Angeles? Yes, it's made in uh, Los Angeles. There we no, drive it up, and there's no bakeries in the Portland Vancouver area. Everything is is centralized. Well, there's so many different products. You've got Danishes. You've got You've got English muffins. You've got different equipment for all of that stuff. So, you know, you could only produce so much from one bakery with the equipment at that bakery. Yeah. Well, there's different yeah. brands out, but Amazing. so yeah, everybody. John, thank you for sharing that with us. We're going to do what we can do. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you. Thanks you. Thank you for being out there on our, on our behalf. Uh, you know, on behalf of all of us. Thank you. Thanks for the call, James in St. Petersburg, Florida. Hey, James, what's up? Hey, Tom. How are you today? And your family good, and your crew. Yeah, so far so good. Uh, I good. had an idea. I thought I'd pass by you. Seems like most yeah. major cities in our country have professional football stadiums. Most of them are enclosed and have filtrated air systems. It seems to me that these could hold hundreds, if not thousands, of tents. And uh, you're talking about triage units. Basically creating mass units inside stadiums. Yeah. And, and, it may come and to that, James, and that's a pretty good idea. These can build a hospital in one week. We could build it up two, three floors in these giant stadiums. There you go. There you go. James, thanks for the call. All it takes is the willpower. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Today we're reading from The Truth About Social Security. The founders' words refute revisionist history, zombie lies, and common misunderstandings by Nancy J. Altman. This is from Chapter 5, page 239. It's titled, In the Immortal Words of Yogi Berra. This is Deja Vu all over again. The last chapter ended with a call to expand Social Security, consistent with the Founders' vision. Whether to increase or decrease Social Security's modest benefits, whether to add new protections or take current protections away, and whether to retain or change Social Security's fundamental structure are questions of values and collective choice. An overwhelming majority of Americans have always supported Social Security, valuing the basic security it provides by pooling risk. 
They understand that there are some undertakings that the government does better than the private sector. Security, both physical and economic, is one of them. To promote economic security in this world, and indeed around the world, government-sponsored insurance has proven to be extremely effective. Indeed, more than 170 countries have enacted their own version of Social Security. Americans appreciate that our Social Security system's benefits are earned and that work is a condition of their receipt. Indeed, the values that underlie Social Security are basic American values. Reward for work, individual responsibility, shared participation, risk and benefit, responsible, prudent financing, and protection of our families. Those of us who want to see Social Security remain strong and see its modest but vital benefits expanded can triumph as long as we are engaged and informed. To win, we must be vigilant, hypersensitive to the goals and tactics that those who would like to see our Social Security system dismantled brick by brick. Though opponents' tactics have changed somewhat over time, their goal has been constant. This chapter will analyze in detail both the goals and tactics of opponents throughout Social Security's history, so supporters of Social Security are well-informed and armed. A small minority has always believed that all but the neediest individuals should be completely on their own and has long fought a campaign against Social Security. People holding those views want, as lobbyist Grover Norquist vividly remarked, quote, to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Those who oppose Social Security have always been a tiny fraction of Americans, but they have an oversized influence because they are generally people of great wealth. President Eisenhower astutely explained in a November 8, 1954 letter he wrote to his brother just who these opponents of Social Security are and what he thought of them. Quote, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security and unemployment insurance, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, and a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. End of quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Some members of that tiny splinter group are libertarians who want to be free of all constraint. Others are wealthy individuals who don't believe they need to pool their risk because they are wealthy enough to self-insure, and they don't want the cost associated with a collective program of insurance. Still others are unenlightened business people who define their self-interest narrowly with no consideration for the common good and want to increase their profits and wealth by reducing the cost of mandatory contributions to government. And others are people who make their living from Wall Street and recognize that if people were not receiving Social Security, they would purchase more stocks, bonds, annuities, and other financial interests in the private market in an effort to protect their economic security. What unites all of these opponents is the desire to undo universal government-sponsored insurance in the form of Social Security and Medicare. People who share these views sought to defeat Social Security when it was first proposed, and when that proved unsuccessful to change its basic structure and function as described below. The history of Social Security shows a continuous chain of opposition, but with different actors over time, of course. Interestingly, in some cases, the most prominent opponents over time have been related. The progeny of some of the wealthy opponents in the 1930s are still fighting Social Security today. The grandfather of President George W. Bush, who sought to radically transform Social Security in 2005, was a man named Prescott Bush, a contemporary of President Roosevelt. He once remarked of Roosevelt, quote, the only man I truly hated lies buried in Hyde Park, end quote. Similarly, the father of one of the highly ideological Koch brothers, Charles and David, who have financed efforts aimed at dismantling Social Security, was a Texas newspaper publisher who used that position to rail against Social Security and other New Deal programs. Opponents and supporters have not fallen neatly into political party affiliation. Among the electorate, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents alike have always supported Social Security because they've understood how important it is to their economic security and to our nation. In addition, once Social Security was established, some Republican leaders like President Eisenhower have supported the program, at least in limited foundational size. In recent years, though, the Republican Party has endorsed proposals to dismantle Social Security, despite the claim made by virtually all Republican politicians that they support it. Moreover, as the mistaken view of Social Security as a drain on the federal budget and economy gained traction in the last few decades, some Democratic leaders have, perhaps unwittingly, pushed for changes that would undermine and weaken Social Security's protection as well. Nevertheless, Though not all Democrats supported Social Security, nor all Republicans opposed it, support for Social Security over its history has largely come from Democrats, opposition from Republicans. The truth about Social Security.
Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Todd in Seattle. Hey, Todd, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hey, Tom. I want to start by thanking you for your program. Intelligent fact-based media is kind of a rare commodity these days. We're, we're doing our best, Todd, although thanks are not necessary. It, it kind of burns through the time. But what's up? Okay. My wife works at SeaTac Airport, and the other day we were discussing, you guys were discussing on the program, how the government could screen passengers coming through the airports to detect coronavirus. Back in the SARS time, I was traveling through Hong Kong, and they had thermal imaging set up with screens. It was very simple. Everybody walked past it. If you had a fever, you were a different color. You could be pulled aside and given, you know, secondary testing. And they're doing nothing at the airport to ensure... Yeah, and that should be a minimal effort. I mean, you know, that that should be the the bare minimum that we do. The problem, you know, with SARS back when SARS was happening is that with SARS, you literally did not become contagious until you were symptomatic. Right. Um, with the right. common cold and the flu, you're typically contagious for a day before you become symptomatic. With this virus, you become contagious the day after you're infected, and it can be up to 14 days before you show symptoms. So, uh, and then for many people, the symptoms are so minor that they think they've just got an obnoxious cold that won't go away. You know, so they're just spreading viruses all over the place and they probably wouldn't show up on the thermal scanner. And in fact, I guess one of the characteristics of it is that you get a fever that comes and goes. And Uh, but still, it's better than nothing, Todd. I'm I'm with you. It's better than nothing. I'd love to see him. I'd love to see him do anything to protect my wife out there. They're they still haven't offered paid leave, but as soon as they do, I'm going to make sure she takes it and gets out of there. It's, yeah. It's kind yeah. of scary. I, yeah, although although the, the density of the population that she's dealing with, I, you know, I don't know what she does there, but the number of people going through airports has got to be radically down right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, I think she said it was 30%, the flight loads today. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's really down. Yeah. Okay. Still well, tell her that. Uh, her. Yeah. Tell her that we're wishing her the very best, and and the same to you, Todd. And and hang in there. You know, we will get through this. Thanks a lot for the call, Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I want to talk about the economy and the COVID nineteen bailout package, which has got Wall Street all in a you know in a frenzy now again. Let's just mm-hmm. I want to review something here, Tom. On Friday, January nineteenth, two thousand seventeen. Mm-hmm which was Barack Obama's last day in office, market closed at 19799 Right now, the Trump economy is not is 1.96% greater in the stock market than it was those three, more than three years ago. So more than right, and we've had more inflation than that. Yeah, and so more than 98% of the cotton candy Trump economy, fueled by sugar and steroids, has come crashing down. That's what it is. And you yep. talked about this with the, the tax cuts that went into stock buybacks and the low interest rates, which have put these corporations in way over leverage because they use their capital to buy their stocks back. And then with the free money they got, they, that's how they kept capital more capital. And now nobody wants their stocks, so they're eating their own stocks and they can't pay back their debts. So right. you know what? When Trump's and now look at Wall Street is is surging now. The market is surging because he's talking about an eight fifty billion dollar giveaway to them again. And now they're going to say, "Oh, Obama's bailout was eight hundred fifty billion. Well, look at this. If how many people are in the country? Three hundred and twenty-five million. Three hundred thirty. <laughs> if every single person, every man, woman, and child were were given a thousand dollars, that's three hundred and thirty billion dollars that's less than half of what they're proposing to give away and all of this you're right okay Okay, so if they're not willing to do it if they want 850 billion dollars then they better be able at least willing to spend half of that and i mean 425 billion dollars giving it to us which we're going to spend right away and if you want if you want, and this time, this would have never happened. This is the problem. I call it the, the Trump economy is like trying to fill up on cotton candy. It's just going to be one big and steroids, which is kind of what you'd expect out of Donald Trump. That's kind of what he eats. But it's going to come crashing down, and this would not have happened. It's not that the, it's not that the COVID-19 is, is the big scare. It's, it's that the market was inflated. It's all, hot, it's all sugary hot air, yes. and it's not real. 
if it had been real and grown slowly the way it was supposed to, the way the, the uh, Obama economy grew. Listen, in March 9th, 2009, Barack Obama, exactly seven weeks after he took office, the market hit bottom at 65.42. It grew. He had his first term, yes, it was very slow growth, uh, 1.8% growth, uh, GDP growth uh, in the first four years. The second four years took off. And it, like I said, from 65.42, he left it at 19.799. That's a 302% increase. That's because it was built on a rock. Don't build your house upon sand. We already know this parallel, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, but you know, really, uh, it, it, we can give a lot of credit to Barack Obama, and I do. But we really never fixed the structural stuff. It got broken back in the in the late 90s and the early 2000s. We never put Glass-Steagall back into place, for example. But, Paul, your points are all well taken. Thank you. We'll be back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We still have basically a lottery economy. We'll continue with your calls right after this. Coming up on the science revolution, what's the truth on coronavirus testing? And why has Trump refused to accept the World Health Organization test that the entire rest of the planet is using? Melinda St. Louis is here on how the insurer's conduct is outrageous on the coronavirus pandemic. Robert Weissman joins in on how public citizen and 70 organizations are calling on Trump to prevent big pharma from profiteering on coronavirus. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear is also here about the ongoing Fukushima disaster. And in Geeky Science, find out what happens if you walk just 30 minutes a day. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever you find great podcasts. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program. Uh, I am blessed to live in Oregon where we have two really great U.S. Senators. One of them, Ron Wyden, is on the line with us right now. His website is wyden, W-Y-D-E-N, senate.gov, and you can tweet him at Ron Wyden. Senator Wyden, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. I hope you and your family are well and staying safe. Everybody's fine and uh, good to be on your show, Tom. Thank you, Senator. I'm doing the show remotely from home, so there's a little bit of a, about a one-second delay in the audio. My apologies in advance for that. No problem. Um, 
and we're on the air all over the country and, and it really pained me to have to go on the air and say, let the people who already voted by mail decide this primary. Do not leave your, you know, if you are uh, sheltering in place, as it were, if you are being cautious, do not leave your home and go vote. This You're putting yourself and poll workers and everybody else at risk. I think this is just a terrible idea uh, that we're having primaries during this time. You have a solution to this. Tell us about it. Yeah, I think we ought to make vote by mail available to everybody in this country because you shouldn't have to give up your health in order to exercise your constitutional rights. And I don't know if all your listeners have picked up on this, but apparently Donald Trump is going to be voting by mail. I don't regularly read the publication, but somebody passed on that that's been in the Palm Beach Post. Well, my take is, is if it's good enough for Donald Trump to be able to vote by mail, it ought to be good enough for Mitch McConnell to give everybody in America the chance to vote the Oregon way and in a way that's going to empower communities. It's safe. It's effective. It's particularly good for working people, young people, and, people, and communities of color. Now, one of the problems that people who want to vote by mail have is that in, um, I believe it's 17 states where you have access to a ballot, but in 14 of those states, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm doing this from memory, I think it's in 14 states, you actually have to, you know, give an excuse. You have to prove that you're going to be out of town or give a doctor's slip or something like that in order to get an absentee ballot. If you pass a federal law, do you have the power to preempt all those state laws, particularly where they may be actually even built into the state constitutions? What we do is we have the power to say that if 25% of the states declare a coronavirus emergency, we would be able to get a vote-by-mail option to everybody in this country. And, you know, the fact is, Tom, people are always saying, oh, the state can't do this, state can't do that. I mean, the fact is... We already have most states in this country having some version of vote by mail. So basically what I'm talking about is kind of upscaling. You're not reinventing the wheel. And I'll also tell you that there's a big public safety issue here that people haven't picked up on, and that is well over half of our poll workers in this country are over the age of 60. So this is a public safety question as well. So as we empower, you know, voters, we encourage uh, lots of folks who haven't had ready access to the polls in the past. We're also doing something that is going to make uh, this country safer. Now, I understand that part of your legislation includes an appropriation to give money to all of the states that don't already operate on vote-by-mail. I believe there's five that do now entirely vote-by-mail, and, and California is moving in that direction. But giving enough money to all those states that they can start the printing presses next week, you know, if it were to pass into law next week, that they could start the printing presses and basically mail out an absentee ballot to every single registered voter in the state, whether those voters want to use them or not. Some people still may want to come to the polls. Do I understand that correctly, A and yes, B? I, uh, what's I, Mitch McConnell's think- take on this? I think, Tom, you have explained it, you know, correctly. And one of the reasons that I'm focused on that $500 million is I don't think people ought to have to choose between exercising their constitutional right to vote and their health. So that would be to essentially use this next six months to pull out all the stops to empower voters. Now, this country has a pretty rich history of being able to really move in a hurry when basic American rights like voting are on the line. So that's basically all I'm, I'm saying is we're going to give communities and states the tools. Now, um, you're asking about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has put out various kinds of statements questioning um, this and the like. At one point, he said, "Well, we have to follow, you know, local, you know, kind of kind of protocols." Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, local protocols are in chaos today. They are in chaos right now. We have Ohio. 
We have Illinois. We have all kinds of states that, you know, are basically saying, well, we're going to have to postpone it. We're going to have to this. We're going to have to have to that. We're not talking about the federal government taking over every election. We're talking about giving communities the tools to empower their voters. And as you know from talking with me about uh, Oregon, I'm the nation's first mail-in United States senator. And what we have found is that it is safe it is convenient. It's particularly good for folks who are juggling really hectic schedules, may have kids, may have child care kinds of questions. And this happens to be something which is the best fallback option right now. That's what it really is. It's a fallback option when you've got all these local jurisdictions in chaos because we've got a pandemic and we've got a chance to do something that will make sense now. And our experience is in Oregon, once you get this, voters love it and they won't let anybody get rid of it. Yeah, I'm with you. Speaking as an Oregonian. So if I was to encourage my listeners to call 202-225-3121 or 224-3121 to reach their member of the House or Senate, and what should they say? Support Ron Wyden's bill to give money to the states so that they can print absentee ballots so that every registered voter can vote by mail this election? You bet Congressman Blumenauer has taken the lead in the House of Representatives. He's got sponsors. Senator Klobuchar has been, uh, she and I have been working, you know, together. I'm the top Democrat on the Finance Committee. She's top Democrat in the Rules Committee. And you bet if voters call, that'll make all the difference in the world. Because as we talked about on your show before, political change often doesn't start in Washington, D.C. and trickle down. It's always exactly the opposite. It starts at the grassroots level. As citizens get involved, they tell their elected officials. And I think the message is, you know, now look at what is going on on the ground now. We've got a fallback. We've got one that is tried and tested. Let's not miss this opportunity to make sure that this fall folks can get a ballot in the mail. And I, I believe once they, once they do, they're never going to go back to yesteryear on this. There you go. Senator Ron Wyden, you just told millions of people, and and I will continue to preach that. And thank you so much for being my senator and being one of the best senators in the United States Senate and for coming on our program from time to time and sharing with us what you're up to. I won't make this a bouquet-tossing contest, but really appreciate your show and the chance uh, to talk to a lot of progressive folks. Thank you. It's great talking to you. You too. You too. Yeah, stay safe. Thank you. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? I was agreeing with you when you first came on because I've been offended by these, by um, Trump coming out and saying that he wants another tax break for the rich and the wealthy when they just gave out the largest tax break when he first became president. No, it's to come to mainstream yep. from now on. During the weekend, the lady doing a press conference, she was saying that we shouldn't be alarmed because there's going to be a spike when we see the numbers coming out for new infections. But you do have to blame Trump and you do have to blame this administration for dragging their feet. When I've been listening to the BBC since this thing first started, and you knew there was a possibility of this coming here. So they like to say, yep. oh, um, you can't be partisan at this time. But everything that Obama did, you know, there was always somebody in the background, like a Donald Trump tweeting and always, you know, disparaging him. So, you know, now we got to hold their feet to the fire because they're in charge right now. Yeah, I'm with you, Charles. And, you know, he has known since December and vividly since January, when the first case was diagnosed in the United States, he has known that this was coming to the United States and that this was here in the United States, and he has done nothing. And Patty Murray's letter from back in January to Pence and to Alex Azar and the head of the uh, CDC saying, why will you not allow the World Health Organization test, which is widely available, they were shipping them to 60 countries in January, why will you not allow that to come to the United States? That letter has not yet been answered. We'll be right back. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, is it just because you wanted to preserve profits for Quest and LabCorp? Is that it? Or Jared's new website? I mean, what's going on here? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, 
to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women, and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waived the banner of voter fraud. In earlier times, to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws, or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions 
functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America by Alan J. Lichtman. Larry in Sheridan, Oregon. Hey, Larry, what's up? Hey, Tom, great show. I'm just a little skeptical of the cash in hand, say $1,000 per citizen. I think it would be more beneficial to just put a moratorium on mortgage and rent payments for three months like they've done in Italy and Spain. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? And I'll take it off the air. You're doing a great job. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. I completely agree with you. There's just no if, and, or buts about it. I completely agree with you. And what Germany did during the crash in, in 2008, during the, the big Bush crash all around the world, what Germany did was they did this thing called Kurzarbeit. Kurz is the German word for short. Arbeit is the German word for work. So it's called short work. And what the German government did is they said to the factories, demand is down, but instead of laying people off or firing people, go to working instead of five days a week, go to working four days a week or even three days a week, and we will make up whatever you, you know, is, in other words, you pay your employees 100% of their paycheck, even though they're only working, you know, 70% of the time or 50% of the time, and we will make up the rest. And the companies received the money from the government and put it into the employees' paychecks. So the companies became the conduits and the money went right straight into the employees. When Trump gave uh, big business in America $1.5 trillion two years ago, not a penny of that went to workers. In fact, if anything, workers got screwed. AT&T got a huge tax cut, and they laid off 22,000 people. Their CEO made millions in the stock going up because the company was using that money to do stock buybacks. All of the major airlines, 96% of all the money that the major airlines have made with these tax cuts and everything from their free cash flow, Robert Reich was just uh, tweeting about this, 96% of it went to stock buybacks. This is so wrong. Uh, Abby in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hey, Abby, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call, even though I want to talk about something else for just a little bit. We've been seeing people like Jim Clyburn and James Carville on our TVs talking about how the primary needs to be shut down. And I find myself angrily waving my middle finger at the TV every time they say that. And yeah, here's you must why. be watching MSNBC. I'm not seeing that on CNN. Well, I've been seeing now, I've been seeing the little clips played on shows like yours. What the deal is, two things. First, we've got down ballot races and all these other primaries that are still to come. I'm in Wisconsin, and here in Wisconsin, we have a very important Supreme Court race. We got to get rid of one of Scott Walker's appointees, these conservatives, and we're counting on having a big showing of Democrats so that we can vote uh, Jill Karofsky into office. So that's one. Yeah, here's thing. the problem, the other, Bobby. People have to get. When's your primary? in Wisconsin. April 7th. But under I understand okay. all the coronavirus people have time to get a mail ballot aside for the sake of this You got to get a mail in ballot. No, is the right, bottom line is you got to get a mail in ballot. In ballots. The other issue is that I was a Bernie delegate in 2016 and what I hear when I hear Carville say shut this thing down what he's really saying is shut out all the Bernie delegates from all the states that haven't voted yet. Even if we're generous and say that Joe's got a 60 to 40 margin in these other states yet to come, I calculated that that would basically be about 500 Bernie delegates that are going to turn into Biden delegates. So what Carville is saying, it's like, we want to shut this thing down so that in, in Milwaukee this summer, we have an arena full of nothing but Biden delegates. All those pesky Bernie delegates aren't there anymore. And that, that really angers me. So However we need to conduct the campaign, I think the campaign should still be conducted. We need to, we need to fight for every delegate because 46, 40, you know, close to 50 percent. And not only that, but Bernie has won the battle of ideas. And who better to represent mm -hmm. these ideas than Bernie delegates? Yeah, I get everything you're saying, Avi, and I don't disagree with any of it. But we have to put it in the context of a world that has literally changed right in front of us. 
This world right. is not going to be the same for years. I mean, it's going to take years for there to be widespread immunization. We're in like the early stages of a smallpox epidemic kind of thing, you know? It's like yeah. immunization is go- probably going to be the thing that stops this. And that's not going to be available for a year and a half, two years. So right now, what we need to do is we need to be encouraging anybody who lives in any state where you can get a mail-in ballot, if you can go online and do it or call your department of whatever it is, Secretary of State's office, and get yourself signed up for absentee ballot or vote-by-mail ballot or whatever your state calls it and yeah. vote. But in, that person, said, really, you know, in, in person absentee voting is what they call it here. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's great. And that said, I mean, even if Bernie drops out right now, that doesn't mean that the primaries aren't going to continue. There's all kinds of primaries going on. And, and these states need to adapt themselves really rapidly to this. And, and this was why I had Ron Wyden on the program. He's proposed legislation to do just that. And Mark Pocan was talking about it you know, very favorably. So we'll see. But your point is well taken. Um, you know, on the other hand, I don't think Bernie wants to be encouraging people to go out to the polls physically. And so maybe he'll take that middle ground that you and I are talking about, about, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to stay in, but I'm asking you not to vote unless you can vote by absentee ballot. Well, I don't know. We'll see what he says. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Ben in Hood River, Oregon. Hey, Ben, what's up? Hi, how are you today? I'm great. You live in a beautiful town. What's on your mind? I know. I love Hood River. I just wanted to talk, bring up the subject of uh, survivorship bias because I feel like a lot of people are discounting the seriousness of the situation because, you know, what about H1N1? What about SARS? What about Ebola? Like those were, everybody was panicking Mm. about that and nothing happened. But this is a faulty logic and it's leading people to make really bad decisions. Also, Bernie 2020, the future is left, and this crisis is showing us how much we need Medicare for all. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, by survivorship, are you saying basically everybody make sure you have a will? Is that what you're talking about? No, survivorship bias is the tendency to assume that because you survived one instance of Oh, survivorship bias. You're talking about the psychological, the the psychology of this. Yes, the psychology of it. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So when people survive something, you know, Y2K, oh my God, it was going to take us out. And hey, we survived it. So the next crisis that comes along, you're a little more laid back. How would you go about talking to those people? I beg your pardon? Oh, how would you go about talking to those people and convincing them they need to take this seriously? I think they need to turn on CNN and watch the overflowing hospitals in Italy right now. Their healthcare system is crashing and they're 11 days ahead of us. That's where I'd start. Ben, thanks a lot for the call. And, uh, Ben lives in Hood River, just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful town on the Columbia River, right down the road here. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Pat in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today? Um, I, uh, I heard suggesting turning uh, stadiums into um, triage centers or whatever, but I was thinking we got all these mm-hmm. big box vacant stores on every corner, you know, the Kmarts and big lots and stuff, and they'd be pretty good too. But um, that's not really the reason I called, but I just got a question. 
concerning this $1.5 trillion that the Fed put into the uh, financial markets. My question is, where does that money come from? Because there is no vote. You know, I remember there was during the Obama era when they passed the um, uh, stimulus, everybody thought, you know, some half of that was like outrageous. But they just pulled this $1.5 trillion out of somewhere. Is it yeah, they pulled the it out of there. Is it on the well, hook for? No, uh, they pulled it out of thin air. The fact of the matter is that the Fed controls our money supply and they can li quite literally manufacture money. I mean, they actually do print our money as well. It, it was, we have Federal Reserve notes. We haven't had Treasury notes since 1913. And so, you know, they just manufacture that money out of thin air. They created over $20 trillion out of thin air in 2008 and 2009 and flooded the markets, uh, flooded the zone with that money, gave it to billionaires, gave it to hedge funds, gave it to banks, gave it to some foreign banks. Deutsche Bank got hundreds of billions of dollars of Fed money. So, you know, the Fed has the ability to simply generate cash. And if they, if, you know, if they, if they were to ever generate too much, then you'd have an inflation problem. But, you know, a trillion and a half dollars is just a blip. There's, uh, I believe, over 100 trillion U.S. dollars circulating around the world. Our GDP is 20 trillion dollars a year. So, you know, one and a half trillion dollars is something that nobody's even going to notice. So don't worry, Pat. It's all good. Thanks a lot for the call. Annie in Watertown, Wisconsin. Hey, Annie, thanks for listening to WRRD. What's up? Well, I'm thinking already the tragedy going on. I don't know if all nursing homes but closed up on Friday to outside visitors, but visitors. also they're pretty yeah. much sequestered in their rooms. So, I mean, that's the whole thing about, you know, being old and lonely and they aren't having the communal lunches or the communal activities. And I don't know how long they're going to, it's going to go on, but I mean, that, you know, it's going to go on for some months being and, home and alone. Right. It's yeah, it's not, it's not good for them psychologically. But if you've got one or two people in a nursing home who have this coronavirus and the, others, the other people don't have it yet, they do need to be isolated. And, and this is why we need the test kits. They need, in every nursing home in America, they need to test every single day, every single person and every single staff member. And particularly the staff members should be tested every day because they could bring it in from the outside. They could have a kid who brings it in from school or whatever. So, you know, we need to get on top of this. Carol in Hemet, California. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Hope everybody's doing well there. I just finished yeah, watching the, the one-hour-long press conference that the president gave, <clears throat> surrounded by experts. And once again, I am very concerned that he's talking about putting money in our pockets, the rest of us who are not billionaires, with this payroll tax business, which mm -hmm. I consider to be you know, their back door to throwing our social security funds into Wall Street eventually. Because yeah. you know, I Well don't I agree Carol, with you. I understand what you're saying and you're you're absolutely I'm sorry to step on you but here, but you know, time is getting short and I wanted to get a couple more calls in. But the the bottom line is Nancy Pelosi will not allow that to happen and that's why Steve Mnuchin pulled that out of the proposal. So that is not on the table right now to the best of my knowledge. So we're good. Carol, thank you. Gar in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Hey Gar, what's up? Thank you, Tom. Great show. Love listening to it. Thank you. A big idea. Banks are the center of our commercial universe. So here's my big idea. We put a 90-day moratorium on all payment of commercial and consumer credit back to banks. In the same token, we eliminate mortgage payments and rent payments, evictions, and foreclosures for 90 days. And if you think about My understanding is what you're describing, Gar, is what both Italy and Spain have done. Great, because we ought to just to just copy it, because if basically we're going to have millions of people unemployed or underemployed, and we're going to have businesses that are folding because of a lack of demand, and the center of the universe, we have to be focused on the bank. And if no one has to pay the bank, and the bank just sits tight right where it is, then nothing really happens to the bank. It's fine. It'll get out of this and come back, and they can right. each make, uh, make up their own arrangements with all their lenders and borrowers, and this thing is all over, but... Yeah, I, I don't know about Spain, but I believe the I, I read an article about the Italy one a couple of days ago in the Financial Times. And my understanding is that what they're doing is, say, you've got uh, 22 months left on your mortgage. The moratorium goes for three months. 
at the end of that three months, you still have 22 months to go on your mortgage. In other words, those three months don't count against the mortgage being paid down, but there's no penalty either. And then the lost profits that the bank will have on that, that lost interest profits, a small portion of that is going to be paid to the banks by the federal government so that the banks don't suffer. You know, they're not going to make a profit, but they will be able to keep their employees employed kind of thing. Just doing, going the same way. What we have to do is figure out a way to provide instant liquidity to the consumer. And we do yeah, that. I'm with you. I'm with you. To- yep. No, spot on, Gar. You, you nailed it. And Donald Trump's proposal does none of that. He wants to give, he wants to have an $850 billion program. $750 billion is going to big corporations. $100 billion is going to us. If you gave, if you gave every working person in the country $1,000, you just burned through that $100 billion. And actually, not even a thousand, it'd be like a 500. So it's just, you know, it's going to be too little too late. I'm concerned because, of course, they're Republicans. Anyhow, thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, democracy starts with you. Call your senators and tell them about Ron Wyden's plan. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 